Today from the Global Lane, migrant encounters hit a record high on the southern border. Hungary's example and warning to the West. They had to declare a state of emergency and they had to put fences up to take care of their country and their citizens. They secured their border, they closed it. A new year begins with Donald Trump holding a commanding lead in Iowa and other primary states. Can anything or anyone stop him? There's, there's really no valid hope. People know that Donald Trump has convictions. They trust the fact that he'll do what he says he does. Character matters. Longing for leaders of integrity like Reagan, Thatcher, and Billy Graham. I saw a man who, who walked the life that he preached about and uh, who, who sought to really honor Jesus every way he could. And CBN's Lisa Robertson steps into eternity after touching countless lives for Jesus. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Migrant encounters at the U.S. southern border hit a record high of 302,000 for the month of December. 785,000 encounters occurred there since October 1st. So according to Pew Research, the foreign-born U.S. population hit a record high of 44.8 million people in 2018. So how might this administration's open border policy transform America in the years ahead? Well, our next guest urges the United States to follow the example of one of its closest East European allies if it hopes to safeguard its democracy and preserve Western civilization. Foreign policy analyst Dr. Shea Bradley Farrell is author of the new book, Last warning to the West, Hungary's triumph over communism and the woke agenda. Dr. Farrell, it's good to talk with you. And I was in Hungary eight years ago when tens of thousands of migrants flooded the border. The Hungarian government, of course, put up fencing, barbed wire along the border, bust migrants out of the country, sent them to other European nations. People around the world criticize Hungary for doing that. So how can the United States follow that and still demonstrate compassion for people in need? Well, Gary, it's very simple, isn't it? They secured their border. They closed it. Uh, the reason that they did that at that time, uh, by September 2015, there were 400,000 immigrants that had come through Hungary. Just in those nine months of that year, they had to declare a state of emergency, and they had to put fences up to take care of their country and their citizens. I wish that the Biden administration would do the same thing. I have spent weeks down at our own southern, southern border uh, both years that Biden has been in office. And here's the thing about it, Gary. You know, Biden is floating, the administration floats this humane, orderly, and safe narrative. It's not. Uh, we know that it's a travesty for Americans with record numbers of uh, Americans dying from fentanyl overdose, the communities bearing the burden of millions of, of illegal people. But what you probably don't know is that there are record numbers of illegal immigrants dying since Biden took office. And Counterpoint Institute, my organization, was one of the organizations that uncovered that early on because uh, Biden, the Biden administration would not report it. Well, it isn't only immigration. I know Hungarians are resisting Western Europe's leftist woke agenda. So what specifically are they doing that we're not doing here in the United States? Well, they're standing their ground. Like I said, they have closed their borders. That's one of the reasons that the Biden administration and the EU cannot stand the Orban uh, government 
And you'll see so much bad about the Orban government in media, in leftist media. It's not true. The other thing that they cannot stand, the EU and the Biden administration can't stand, is that the uh, Orban government has also said no to transgender ideology for their children. They actually passed amendments to their child protection law recently that said you cannot bring transgender ideology and teach uh, transition to our children in schools. We're not doing it. It has angered the EU. It has angered the administration here in the United States. And the last thing is the war in Ukraine. Uh, Hungary has been reliant on Russian energy. You know, their infrastructure is Soviet era because the Soviet Union occupied them for 46 years. They said, we cannot do these sanctions against Russia because it will crush our own people. So I try to explain to people that they are not pro-Russia, pro-Putin. They are Hungar Hungary pragmatic. It's Hungary first the way I wish that Biden would make America first. They're a member of NATO, and as a member of NATO, they have to support Ukraine, as NATO is doing. So tell us a little more about that. Is it just about oil? It, it is uh, about also the fact that over 400,000 Ukrainians have died, Gary. I was in the Ukrainian Refugee Center this year or last year, I can't remember, in Hungary. Hungary shares a border with Ukraine, and Hungary has taken in 3.5 million refugees. Most of them left uh, to other parts of Europe. But the point is that Hungary took them in, paid for their medical care, paid for their plane, bus, whatever tickets to go where they wanted, did find jobs for the ones that wanted to stay. Also, that they know Ukraine can't win. I spent about three months this year in Central Europe. Over there, you see more of the real news, not the U.S. leftist you know, media or the European media, but the real news that the counteroffensive is not working, infrastructure in Ukraine has been leveled, and it's just also a matter of compassion. They're not going to win. Uh, and let me just say this, too. I do not believe, neither does Prime Minister Orban believe, that Russia will continue to move into NATO, because then he'd have 31 countries against him. He has made this a fight about um, NATO becoming coming closer and closer to his border. We do military exercises uh, as NATO on his border. It's like if he did them on our U.S. southern border, um, I'm not... You know, I am not apologizing for him. I do not like Putin, but I'm trying to explain what his strategy is behind this war. Well, now he's got the opposite. He got uh, more NATO members as a result of that with Sweden, uh, possibly Sweden and Finland. Uh, okay, the new book, Last Warning to the West, Hungary's Triumph Over Communism and the Woke Agenda. Dr. Yes. Shea Bradley-Farrell, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Gary. Here in the U.S., the new year means primary season is in full swing. The Iowa caucus is less than two weeks away, and Donald Trump has a commanding lead over his Republican opponents. Well, joining us with more is former U.S. Congressman Robert Pittenger. He's author of the new book, Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. Congressman Pittenger, polls show President Trump with about 50 percent of the vote in Iowa, and that's 32 points ahead of his nearest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis spent a lot of time over the holidays campaigning across the state. So does he have a chance of upsetting Trump in Iowa, or do you expect Trump to run away with a vote there? I think uh, Donald Trump has a compelling lead. 
people know that Donald Trump has convictions, and uh, that's sorely missing today in our uh, government and public policy. So uh, they, they trust the fact that he'll do what he says he does. Well, what about Chris Christie and Vivek uh, Ramaswamy? What are the chances they'll drop out of the race if they perform poorly in Iowa, or do you think they'll stick it out through New Hampshire? I don't know. Sometimes people love the media attention, and they like to be a barking dog. You don't mind me saying it that way. Uh, I, I think it's just uh, it, it's a, it's a lost uh, you know interest on their part to continue to pursue it. There's there's really no valid hope except for being out there and having the platform to extol your uh, your thoughts and your policies. Yes, you have to win to attract money to pay for those ads and and to run a campaign. In a recent GOP debate, candidate Vivek Ramaswamy alleged that Nikki Haley is corrupt and then leading the Republican presidential candidate, uh, the leading one, Donald Trump, has been impeached twice. He's facing 91 felony counts, four criminal trials this year. You've written this book, Character Matters. So does it matter with voters? Because it seems the more that Trump's opponents throw against him, the more popular he becomes. Well, I think it's because the voters sense it's been politicized. You know, unfortunately, inside our criminal justice system, there's a lot of great people. But there's also some folks in there who have exploited the system for political purposes. And I think that's been very evident today. So uh, there's a reaction from uh, many Republicans is that it's become a political weapon uh, by the Democrat Party. Uh, the Justice Department obviously... Uh, reports to the, the president, and uh, they are in line with his views and his policies and his interests. Of course, there are corruption allegations leveled against President Biden. And although Donald sure. Trump appointed three pro-life justices to the Supreme Court, many Christians say they can't vote for him again because of his character flaws. So what mm -hmm. do you tell people when they look at Biden and Trump and others uh, especially these two leading presidential contenders, and, and they struggle with voting for candidates of questionable character. What do you say to them? Well, our country needs prayer. Uh, back in 1976, you may recall, there was a big prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. that uh, Pat Robertson and my boss, Bill Bright, organized. We had 100, 100, uh, we had a million people who came together on the mall in Washington to pray. So we cannot... Uh, put it, put aside the reality of the power of prayer. And we've got to pray for our country. We're a fallible people. We're all sinful people. We've all come short of the glory of God. And, and, our, and, and our leaders are fallible. And we've got to, we've got to pray that the Lord will, will bring righteousness back to our country. And uh, yes, we have those who are running today that there are question marks about their lives. But, you know, God in the past has used people uh, who didn't necessarily walk with him, but they did. They abided by his principles. And throughout biblical history, uh, we see the evidence of that. So God can, he's sovereign. Uh, we have to trust his sovereignty. And, but we have to know that we must pray and we must work and be engaged, be involved uh, to bring righteousness back to our country and, and seek to elect people who have righteous convictions. And that's why, uh, frankly, we wrote the book. I wrote it originally for my grandchildren. But uh, in reality, it's become something that I hope will help build uh, the leadership commitments and the qualities of those uh, who are seeking to be involved in public life, young people who uh, want to be engaged.
that they might find in this book and these stories uh, the commitments and the convictions of what they can do as individuals. Up next, the leadership attributes of Billy and Franklin Graham and the qualities of Iron Lady Margaret Thatcher that even her political opponents admired. What America needs now, the leadership qualities of Billy and Franklin Graham and former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. More with former Congressman Robert Pittenger and his book, Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. You write about the leadership qualities of exceptional individuals, those you've met and those you know, uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, George W. Bush, Colin Powell, and I know you write about both Billy and Franklin Graham, so tell me why you included them in the book and what qualities do you admire about Reverend Graham and his son? Absolutely. Wonderful people. I, I first met Dr. Graham when I was his caddy. I was 21 years old in the Byron Nelson Golf Classic. He was playing with Byron and Arnold Palmer and Bob Hope. And I chased golf balls for Billy all over the golf course and, and Bob Hope as well. But uh, that began a relationship. Uh, in the ensuing years, I was the assistant to Dr. Bill Bright, president of Campus Crusade for Christ. And as such, we had many, many meetings with Dr. Graham and had the occasion to be around him. And I saw a man who, who walked the life that he preached about. Uh, he was a very thoughtful, caring individual and uh, who sought to really honor Jesus every way he could. And his son, Franklin, uh, much like his mother, uh, Franklin is, uh, would charge hell with a water gun. Uh, he's a remarkable individual. We've flown around the world many times on his missions with Samaritan's Purse. And uh, I just have great respect for the family. Uh, all of them are really wonderful people. Their Franklin's son, Will, uh, came to one of our meetings in uh, Romania just this last year to give a prayer breakfast. I organized uh, security briefings for parliamentarians, and we'll have several hundred of them come to each of these meetings. But uh, we had a prayer breakfast at this one uh, to pray for Ukraine. And Will came in and gave an evangelistic message. And one member of the French parliament came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Robert, you've, I've known you for many years. I know you're Christian, uh, but you know, I'm an atheist. Uh, but after hearing the message today, I believe I can believe in God. And so I think my uh, gratitude for the Grahams is they've been so faithful and so consistent to present the gospel. Uh, you know, you didn't see Billy or Franklin on the TV, whether it's Larry King or whatever show, that in the first minute they didn't give John 3.16. So I have deep respect uh, for the family and, and all that they do for the kingdom of God. How about several others? Who are your favorites in your book and why? Well, of course, I, I wrote about Margaret Thatcher. I've hosted her twice in Charlotte and met with her many times in London. When I first met her, I said, Lady Thatcher, we all know that you are the Iron Lady. You were there and the wall came down. You fought the socialists. You fought the liberals. You had enormous headwinds uh, against you. Uh, everyone, everyone fought your policies because you were trying to turn your country economically around and uh, even your own party. And through that, though, you prevailed. What we don't know is what made you Margaret Thatcher? What gave you the courage, the stamina, the fortitude, the conviction to persevere? 
in the midst of all the headwinds of all the critics. She said, Robert is my father. She said, first of all, my father was a Methodist Sunday school teacher, and he took me to church every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning, and I got grounded in my Christian faith. But he taught me three things about leadership. The first thing she said that he taught me was determine the right thing to do. What is the principal thing to do in any given situation? Secondly, with your whole heart, commit yourself to that objective. And thirdly, with all your persuasion and all your conviction and all your ability, seek to bring your friends and your colleagues to join you. Well, that's very profound, very simple. But um, that focus led her throughout her 11 years of being prime minister. Let's move the clock forward 20 years. That was in 1993 uh, that she recounted that story to me. In 2013, I'd been elected to the United States Congress. And Harvard invited all the new members, 85 of us, Democrat and Republican, uh, up uh, to the college, uh, I guess, to give their opinions and points of view, try to persuade us on a lot of different policies. On the way out, I rode in the, on the bus with a member of the UK Parliament who's a member of Labor, totally different party than Mrs. Thatcher. And as we rode along, we talked about mutual friends, and finally I got the guts enough to ask her, what did you think of Margaret Thatcher expecting the darts to fly since they were of totally polarized views? And she looked at me and she said, Robert, God bless her. She saved our country. She had the guts and the courage to do what my party didn't have the courage to do. And boy, did that hit me. Of course, Ronald Reagan and, and Benjamin Netanyahu and Tom Landry, Joe Gibbs, Kathy Lee Gifford, all these individuals who had impactful lives, yet they all became as very, they started this life as ordinary people. I mean, Billy Graham was a farm boy. Uh, Ronald Reagan was raised in a small Iowa town. Um, we didn't come from royalty, no one, and we write about it in the book, uh, but they all came from growing up in very ordinary people uh, in lives, but they became extraordinary people. And God can use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And all of these people as well had a, a, a Christian uh, conviction and an understanding, at least a biblical one. I, I would say Christian for Benjamin Netanyahu, and maybe Dr. Kissinger and some others, but they all knew the foundations of the moral principles, the guidance that uh, led our country. Okay, the book is Character Matters, Personal Stories of 31 World Changers. Congressman Robert Pittenger, thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. Anytime the folks want to learn more, they can go to Amazon and, and find the book. Here at the Global Lane, we mourn the loss of Lisa Robertson, wife of Tim Robertson and daughter-in-law of Pat Robertson. Lisa went to be with the Lord on Saturday, December 30th. Here's a tribute to an amazing woman of God whose passion for Jesus touched countless lives. Born March 9, 1954 in Colorado, Lisa Nelson went on to attend Sweetbriar College where she founded a religious conference. She happened to invite a gentleman named Pat Robertson to be the keynote speaker. He agreed and brought his son Tim along. Tim and Lisa quickly fell in love and were married 46 years. Along the way, they had five children, Laura, Elizabeth, Willis, Callie, and Abby. 
Abby, a reporter with CBN News in Washington, chatted with her mom a few years ago about motherhood. I would describe motherhood as one of the great opportunities that God gives women. It is a job, it is a ministry, it is so much fun, and it's a way we partner with the Lord to see, to see his work. A great source of joy for Lisa, her 15 grandchildren. They affectionately know her as Honey. Lisa had a passionate love for Jesus and brought her family traditions to the 700 Club audience, including her popular segments on Advent. One of the things I love about Advent is I feel like it's God's gift to us because it is a time where we can pause, we can reflect, mm -hmm. we can really begin to think about what Christmas really is. Lisa led a women's Bible study for decades at Galilee Church, which led to her passion for reminding women that God can provide wisdom and direction. It was something she'd experienced, resulting in her book, The Path of Life. In 2019, she appeared on the 700 Club to discuss it with that keynote speaker she'd contacted 45 years before, her father-in-law, Pat Robertson. I think there's a verse in, in Chronicles that says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And I translate this as help. And I think you can ask him for, I would ask him for wisdom as I would raise my children. And then I would continue to seek him and to, by reading the Bible and by getting that kind of um, fortification from the promises of his word to, to raise my family and then to continue to knock. Lisa leaves behind a rich legacy of family and faith and her 16th grandchild on the way. Dee Dee and Pat Robertson, Scott Ross, and now Lisa. Our CBN family has experienced great loss during the past two years. So please keep the Robertsons in your prayers. And remember, there is a time for everything under heaven, a time to mourn and a time for dancing. So we gladly celebrate Lisa's life and we rejoice. Praise replaces despair. God removes the sackcloths and clothes his people with joy. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Rumble, and now on Xfinity. And until next time, be blessed.